Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And we heard over the weekend that the federal government will effectively double the New Start payment, which is now called the Job Seeker Allowance. Someone who's been part of the coalition, the Raise the Rate Coalition for the past couple of years, is Emma Dawson at Per Capita. Um, the corona crisis has delivered more than what has been asked for, at least for the next six months. And we've invited Emma to help unpack what, ha- what has been released and also give us her thoughts on what might still be to come as the government tries to, I think their word is, bridge um, um, build a bridge over this health and economic crisis to what comes next. And it's really great to have you there, Emma. Thanks so much for having me on. And um, so we've heard two rescue packages um, of assistance announced now from the federal government. These will be legislated this week as federal parliament is sitting. Um, the latest one yesterday is $66 billion and includes this effective doubling of the job seeker allowance. So I imagine this is welcome news for many. What's your, what's your response? Oh, yeah, look, I think it is. Um, it is welcome news for people that have been calling for a long, long time um, for a significant increase to what was known as New Start, now known as the Job Seeker Payment. Um, look, it's an increase of 550 per fortnight for the next six months. It'll cost the government just over $14 billion. Um, it is a temporary increase, and it's significantly more than even advocates in the Raise the Rate Coalition have been calling for. We've, um, we were for a long time calling for... $75 a week, so 150 a fortnight. We've recently bumped that up to 95 um, to reflect cost of living increases, but you know, even 95 would only be 190 um, a fortnight. So it's more than twice what advocates have been calling for. Um, it is long overdue. I think uh, it's unlikely that well, the government has not indicated any intention to make it permanent. Um, and I think uh, the onus now will be on us to advocate that they do make any, not probably not the full amount permanent, um, but at least that, you know, at least half of it um, on an ongoing basis. Um, it's currently more than the age pension for the next six months, which is interesting. So um, I think, you know, it is unlikely we'll see it stay at that very high rate, but that does need to be bumped up significantly over the long term. And uh, there'll obviously be a massive pushback if it's just withdrawn completely in six months' time. Um, so hopefully we can now um, advocate for that to, to be an ongoing measure. And Emma, I mean, to your knowledge, can, can this effectively be accessed now or is it something people can only access in, in a few weeks' time? Yeah, see, that's that's a little bit unclear. So they're saying it's only available, I think, from the 27th of April. Um, and so it's clearly primarily intended to catch people that are going to lose their jobs. Part of that will be administration issues. It'll take a while for them to uh, get organised to get the extra money out the door, I would think. As you, noticed, as you noted, it's got to be legislated first and then there'll be some measures that need to be put in place. I think they are going to need to look at... Well, I'm certain they're going to need to look at putting on more frontline staff in Centrelink offices, uh, which has, again, been very long overdue. But, yeah, four weeks away is um, not ideal... Uh, and I think it does indicate that the reason the government's done this now is because they expect a lot more people to be out of work. Um, and there's an interesting mentality here. I mean, as recently as a week ago, Morrison was indicating that the new payment would only be for people that were thrown out of work. And he said, I quote, 
for no reason, for no, through no fault of their own, through no fault of their own. So indicating that somehow there's a difference between those people already um, uh, stuck outside the labour market and those that will be uh, forced into unemployment due to coronavirus. Now, fortunately, they haven't gone down that path, but I think the structure of the package package still indicates that this is targeted at people that they expect to lose their job over coming weeks because of the coronavirus impact. And that's worrying to me because I, one of the downsides of this package is I don't think there's nearly enough in there uh, that's aimed now at keeping people in work. Um, the business measures are going to take quite a while to filter through. Uh, and they are primarily delivered to businesses through the tax system and through an increase in, increase in liquidity for the big banks to create, to create loans, essentially, for business. Um, but, you know, within a few hours of Morrison announcing this, uh, the premiers of the two biggest states where most of Australia's, or, you know, majority of Australians are in work in those states, um, has come out and shut down a lot of those small businesses entirely. So no bank's going to loan money to a small business that doesn't have any customers for the foreseeable future. So there are some problems there with the package, um, and I think it, it speaks to a lack of coordination and um, really of authority of the government, of the federal government, um, making coordinated decisions on, on you know what's going to operate and where the money's going to be targeted. And we are hearing that there, you know, there is a sort of a national cabinet um, involving the, the the states and also the federal government and others and other advisors yeah. and the like meeting twice a week now. Um, I mean, you you put some questions there, and I suppose there's just a lot to take in for people, and we'll all be kind of having a look and seeing what our needs are and and what options might be there on the table for us and the like. Do you think, though, that we will start to see um, that that national cabinet come into its own over time that we will going to we are going to hear kind of one one voice rather than multiple different voices well, let's hope so Kalia, because i think yesterday was confusing for everybody um the, the National Cabinet, it's really just a rebranding of COAG, of the Council of Australian Governments. If it was genuinely a national, like a wartime cabinet, I think you'd see the Leader of the Opposition included for a start. Um, and I think it'd be uh, working a little bit more effectively than it is. I think Dan Andrews and Gladys Berejiklian did the right thing, making the call on closing down um, you know, areas of social gathering uh, over the weekend. But I think their frustration was palpable in that they both came out and did that before the, you know, so-called National Cabinet gathered via teleconference last night. They were clearly frustrated with waiting um, for some of those more urgent decisions and, and in um, certainly in Andrew's case, at least around schools. Uh, so I hope that they can get, um, get that working to the point where they are able to speak with one voice, but I think actually what we're seeing at the moment is the federal government's being pushed by the major states, by the largest states, particularly by Dan Andrews here in Victoria, um, and by Berejiklian as well, rather than them um, being the wiser than the federal government being the one calling the shots. And I think if Morrison were to do what um, other leaders have done in times of crisis and bring in the opposition and have a genuinely non-partisan, war cabinet-style approach. Uh, then he would probably be able to exert a lot more authority over the messaging um, and have a much more coherent message for people because there is mass confusion out there this morning well, what's th going on. Yeah, and I think people did pick up a tone from the Prime mm. Minister that felt like you're in trouble, you know, strict father um, yeah, type yeah, tone, yeah. Which, which I think was, a, I mean, a little 
unexpected from a lot of people because we have many of us have been following advice best we can anyway and also it feels inevitable a lot of these shutdowns um it felt inevitable but of course things don't just happen overnight there's a process um advice is taken things ramp down and so forth so the idea that I mean look some people were obviously going about business as usual when things aren't usual but um yeah that tone was took a lot of people by surprise I think yeah I think yeah he he sounded defensive he sounded frustrated um and he didn't sort of um project that kind of calm reassurance that we really need um that you do get and you know I'm sorry to sound like a fangirl but I've been incredibly impressed with the way Dan Andrews has handled this whole thing and and the same through the bushfire crisis um you know you need that kind of just calm no nonsense uh, not hectoring people not accusing people not expressing expressing frustration with people's actions but taking responsibility that you know, the buck stops with you and you've got to uh, tell people clearly what needs to be done. There has been a sense of catch-up, I think, on the government's part with this, that every day it seems to be getting away from them and they're, they're constantly trying to catch up with the with the crisis. Um, look, I, I, I don't want to be too negative. We, the, the, the new start, um, the job seeker payment is a, is a good thing um, and there are other measures in the package that are important. At least we're seeing this government take some stimulatory action, um, which goes against pretty much everything they believe in. So, you know, I'm, I'm relieved to see that uh, for a start, but I think uh, I think there are some aspects of the package that aren't particularly well designed. Um, the superannuation thing's, you know, a significant um, issue uh, for me, and I think there's a there's a problem with the tone and the, and the messaging as well. Emma Dawson's our guest executive director at Per Capita, speaking all about the government's measures um, in the face of the COVID-19 crisis. And you mentioned there, Emma, that some of these um, initiatives that have been announced by the government kind of go against their traditional ideological stance um, and just the size of the package, um, you know, runs against the kind of neoliberal consensus that's existed for many, many years. There's been talk, and not that this is about to happen, but there's been talk about the potential of nationalising assets, um, Virgin Australia, for example, that conversation's kind of happening. To what extent does this um, global crisis potentially disrupt that sort of neoliberal consensus and the traditional ideological underpinnings, um, you know, that we've sort of seen in Australia for, for many, many years? It completely. It disrupts it completely. It, it shows the lie of uh, their mantra that we have to have a budget in surplus or, you know, a balanced budget is the most important thing. Um, the government can effectively print money um, if it wants to, um, to pay for things. And that's what governments have always done in times of war and crisis. No one, you know, we've been saying for years now, no one asked how you paid for World War II. Um, no one's, you know, really, a few people are confused about where the money's coming from, but nobody's questioning that they need to spend it. Um, and we're also in a time of record low interest rates. You know, this government can effectively borrow billions of dollars over 30 years with uh, with no real interest rate over the long term. The cost of inflation will wipe out any, um, any interest they'd pay on that debt over time. Um, it is an absolute reversal of the small government... Uh, sort of neoliberal economic mantra that you need to pay for everything with through austerity measures by cutting cutting spending and, and then reducing taxes simultaneously. Um, it's never been true and these crises demonstrate that it isn't and that governments can spend and should spend what is needed to keep the economy uh, working and to keep people in jobs and every time the you know the, the federal government goes into surplus, well, the private sector um, loses money. So the money comes from somewhere in an economy. We have, you know, 
it's about the limitation of resources that we have in our nation. So it is a big reversal. Um, there's no indication that this, in government, that this government intends to make it a permanent one. Uh, and I actually think that this crisis is, uh, you know, in the words of um, Barack Obama's old chief of staff, uh, Rahm Emanuel used to say, never let a crisis go to waste. Well, for Social Democrats, I think this is absolutely our last best chance of rebuilding a society that is not focused on wealth creation and trickle-down economics and is much more um, Keynesian in its design long-term and will invest in people and invest in the planet. Um, and so we'll be fighting really hard at the capital. We were doing this work already, but this crisis has just intensified uh, the need for us to advocate for a, a full employment economy in which we invest in new industries, we lift the wages and conditions of those frontline key workers that we're seeing keeping society ticking over now, like care workers and retail workers and teachers and um, nurses, um, and that we, we, you know, for example, one great thing we could do would be spend a lot of money building more public housing in this country. It creates jobs, it, it solves a huge problem, growing problem with homelessness and unaffordable housing. So I hope I'll be fighting for a much more permanent shift um, in ideology and in, in the way we approach our economy and society as we rebuild out of this crisis. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that idea of when that rebuilding is going to happen, I mean, I, don't, I, I sort of, my mind doesn't even want to go there yet um, because <laughs> we're still just grappling with, yeah. um, I mean, you know... Getting through. Yeah, well, yeah. something like two-thirds of jobs, you know, can't easily be done from home. Um, and, right. you know, so uh, those of us that can work from home are in a very, very fortunate position mm -hmm. and those businesses that can keep functioning. And, of course, you know, business business you know people in business or NGOs are clever and will find ways but obviously some jobs just aren't like that so um, before we get to the rebuilding we need to work out how we're going to go through this period and we don't know how long for um, but it's been really I mean you did mention super before and I mean this is this is an area where uh, it, it is um, a shift that people uh, are able to to be able to withdraw if they if they choose to, you know, ten thousand dollars this financial year from super, ten thousand dollars in in the next financial year. I'm not sure yeah. whether that's set in stone for now or whether that might shift and change. But that is a shift, isn't it? That's a change. It is a shift, and it's a bad shift. Um, for a start, most people's super accounts will have taken a hit already in the global economic downturn over the last couple of weeks of about twenty percent. So they've got less in there than they had before. Uh, the people that are most likely to need to, to, you know, to, will be tempted to raid their super will be low-income workers and people that are likely to uh, have their hours massively reduced or be stood down. And I think it's important to note that if you're stood down rather than um, sacked, you won't have access to the job seeker payment, but you still won't have any income. So a lot of businesses are being encouraged to keep their staff on, but like Qantas, for example, um, they're just standing them down indefinitely without pay. So those low-income workers that can't access JobSeeker, don't have an income will be tempted to raid their super. Uh, a few, very few of them have a lot more, like particularly people under 30, 35, very few of them have anything like $20,000 in super. If they do have $20,000, they'll wipe their super out at a time when it's worth a lot less in the market than it will be once we recover from this. Um, and that, and even those that, you know, for, 20, for whom 20000 isn't the whole amount, the hit to relatively meagre superannuation balances 
um, will never, that will never recover. And so that we're just kicking the can down the road here. Those people will retire uh, a lot less off than they would have been. Um, you've got to remember that you know every dollar in super now um, turns into you know a lot more over time with compound interest. So this is a really, I think, wrong-headed approach by the government. It would have been much, much better just to give people uh, who were stood down from their workplaces, as the UK government's doing, and they're no bleeding-heart lefties. They're paying up to 80% of people's salaries to a cap that's equal to about $5,000 a month uh, for all workers who can't be paid to keep those workers attached to their workplace mm-hmm. and so and money coming in while the business is unable to pay them. It just shows that's that, I mean, there's so many different support. approaches that um, mm. government can take and are taking around the world and this idea that we can learn from each other and it'd be really good to kind of get you on in another couple of weeks I think Emma and and keep this conversation going because we're all kind of drinking in so much information and trying to weigh up decisions in in you know people are in a situation to make financial decisions when when things are um, changing all the time and also probably not um, in you know, about if I'm anything to go by, like I'm a sort of little rattled and and wondering, you know, next steps and so forth. So you want yeah. to make sure that you're making the right decisions for for your future as well. And, and just finally, Emma, before we let you go, I mean, the tone from both um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison and and the likes of Dan Andrews has been, you know, quite assertive. Finally, over the past um, couple yeah. of days, they've intimated that there, you know, will probably be more supports announced at some point in the future. What do you think? the future might hold because it seems often throughout this crisis we've been sort of one step behind and haven't announced um, a fully um, you know inclusive package or one that's large enough that will um, reach the people Mm. who need it but then a couple of days later it's clear that we actually need something much larger. Yeah that's right Uh, look I hope they do get ahead of it when obviously the GFC was a very different situation Um, it wasn't such an external massive uncontrollable shock um, as this one, but that the mantra then was go hard, go early, go households. Well, they haven't gone hard and they haven't gone early and they haven't gone households um, in this instance. I think uh, we will have to, we will see more, and it would be better to, to you know throw more money than they think they will need to now. Um, take a give it a massive boost now than keep having these incremental catch ups because it, uh, it it doesn't fill people with confidence and you'll see more you'll see small businesses go to the wall very quickly now that a lot of them are, are being forced into shutdown um, so I think we will need to see more direct support to households and more direct support to small business in to in cash rather than loans and tax refunds um, and we'll need to see it pretty soon so I'll be keeping a close eye on it and uh, hopefully that uh, national cabinet, as it's called, can start to exert some real um, influence and pressure on the federal government to to make those decisions in a really timely manner uh, and not and not try to uh, keep anything in the cupboard. This, this isn't the time to hold back. Emma, it's really great speaking with you. Thanks again, and we'll speak to you again soon. Excellent, guys. Bye for now. Uh, Emma Dawson, she's exec director over at Per Capita, one of the many that are really, you know, focused in with their policy brains on um, what's coming, what's been said, um, the rescue packages that we've been getting, um, checking that it's getting to the right people, putting ideas into the mix, and um, I'm sure that um, we're going to keep hearing more announcements as we go. Triple R. 
At the moment, we want to share with you what's happening culturally, though, and help connect you to music and culture throughout. Um, it's what we do here. It's what community radio does across the country. And right now, we've got Tracy Hutchinson on the line. She's a long-time Triple R broadcaster and former program manager here, too. And she's now with the Community Broadcasting Foundation as the Partnerships and Projects Manager over there. And it's really great to have you on the line, Trace. Hey there, Carlia and, and Dylan. What a what an unusual circumstance we we find ourselves in. But um, so heartening to have been able to tune in to our our great community stations, uh, particularly in Melbourne over the weekend and hearing broadcasters like Wisey broadcasting from home. And I'm sure you guys have got your um, your distancing protocols in place. And I think we've all been reminded um, of. How many? How much we've taken for granted, and and that includes a, a thriving uh, community broadcasting sector in Australia. It's a, it's kind of one of the best in the world, and like every other small business or or mid 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 range business, you know, people are are under huge pressure at the moment, and. Um, uh, the CBS, along with uh, the CBAA, the Community Broadcasting Association, which is really acting as the single source of truth for the sector at the moment, um, really kind of just doing some great work. The CBAA just um, updating constantly through their Facebook pages and webinars and, and other peak bodies as well, First Nations media. You know, everyone is really rallying and... Um, while that's that's really heartening, I, I think underpinning it all is this is this deep sense of uh, the unknown and um, and feeling and that uncertainty and, and distress. So we're we're all doing what we can to to be in this together, and um, and of course community radio and community media and more broadly just play such a big part in that. And, I mean, it's been a really bizarre year, Tracy. The bushfire crisis feels like a distant memory, but, of course, it wasn't long ago at all. And I know that you were kind of spending some time with those communities affected by the bushfires and checking in on some of the local stations. I wonder if you can share with us, I guess, the role and, and resilience of community stations in times of crisis and, and the role that they can play for, for listeners and their broader community. Yeah, that's right, Dylan. You know, I, I started the year, I've been spending the last couple of months um, spending time in some of the really seriously impacted uh, parts of uh, southeast Gippsland in Victoria and the south coast of New South Wales and connecting with stations through their um, three Reg, Radio East Gippsland in Bairnsdale, uh, 3MGB, uh, the one that for all the wrong reasons, I guess, became Global News in Mallacoota, um, the uh, Mallacoota Gippsland Broadcasters. Um, we know that station it found itself at the front line of a, of a national tragedy, a national disaster, and, and going back out there into those communities and seeing literally this the scorched earth reality of of the impact of, of what those communities have lived through was 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 pretty confronting um, and knowing that those those little stations um, many of them stayed on air until they lost power other stations um, our friends in braidwood had a backup generator that allowed them to stay on air for you know around six months providing updated information about a fire that that really a fire front that really actually 
you know, spanned six to eight weeks. Um, spent a lot of time with our friends at Two Ear FM, the wonderful Ear FM, the Yoruba Stella Access Radio in Maria, who. Um, you know, tragically for them, uh, they they're um, you know they were gearing up, ready to to cover events from New Year's Eve, and um, and their their transmitter pole they went off air, you know, on New Year's Eve, and they took them a few days to work out exactly what had happened. But their transmitter pole was in the middle of the Mogo State Forest, and it burned with everything else. And so they were cobbling together, um, you know, being incredibly resourceful. I think this is a thing that, that has been so extraordinary, just the resilience, the dedication. So the Maruya um, folk were able to piggyback off some other comms in nearby Naruma and were able to sort of broadcast in a in a um, more reduced way. But, but they really were desperate to just get back on air and, and connect with the people. And, you know, they're great... Um, their great uh, feeling there was that, you know, the time their community needed the most, they, they, their transmitter burned down. So, you know, there was a lot of um, trauma and, and, and sense of, you know, wanting to do more. Uh, and the work I've been doing on is really some research around a, a trauma support project that would, we're, we're hoping to pilot uh, with the DART Centre in um, they're based at Melbourne University. It's a global organisation and um, looking at um, actually recognising that, you know, our broadcasters increasingly are going to be on the front line of, of, of some of these, um, you know, what was then considered to be, um, you know, a climate-related uh, disaster in, in local communities. And, and now, of course, they've got the double whammy, you know. So, so the same towns that we've been encouraging people to go into with an empty esky, um, are finding themselves now with um, people who've gone for all the right reasons to try and support some of those community stations and those communities, but this is the last thing they want people to be doing yeah. is to turn up with an empty esky. So there's there's kind of there's so much um, in in those smaller um, towns, and it's the community stations that are that are really doing their best to, to sort of stay on air, um, be the gel of those communities. Um, some, uh, you know, they're, they're practising their um, COVID protocols, they're wiping down desks, they're doing all those things, they've reduced down to skeleton staff, but like everybody else, um, you know, whether or not your main sponsors were coming from big organisations um, like Blues Fest or Splendour or the Comedy Festival, um, which, which I know has hit, you know, stations like Triple R and PBS and other big stations. Um, I guess it's an economy of, of scale. You know, we're talking about um, some stations who rely on the bunning sausage sizzle, uh, and there ain't no bunning sausage sizzle, um, or the local sporting club who won't be running those kinds of events. And, and this is this is really, um, you know, hamster wheel. You know, organisations. You know, these are people mostly volunteer run. Um, doing it for the things that we love so much about community radio, the passion, that incredible sense of civic duty. Um, and and our own people are, are really, you know, they're stepping up, but they're also being, you know, really tested. So I guess, you know, the, the conversations that are having, as you would imagine they are, um, through the CBF and the CBAA is, is how we can best um, use the resources that we do have um, and, and what, is the best response at this time and, and that is a complex um, 
you know, that is a complex picture. And uh, But, you know, I'm, we, we're all kind of spending time on the phone. We're, you know, reaching back out to um, people that we connected originally with, you know, off the back of the fires. Um, but also, you know, doing as much as we can to uh, support some of the other um, peaks that are really reaching out to uh, their communities and, and, and doing what we can to, you know, continue what you guys are doing, you know, being there, serving the community, um, you know, giving really important information at a critical time. Wow, that's a voice, of course, of Tracy Hutchinson, Partnership and Project um, Projects Manager over at the Community Broadcasting Foundation, of course, um, been around these traps in this building for a very long time as well. And it's it's just it is really comforting to hear your voice, Tracy. And I think maybe that's you know that is part of community radio too that we have our people. I think you just said that, and I feel very much like that too. I tuned in to to Triple R um, through the weekend just to see just to hear my people, and just you know we're all kind of navigating um, this this together. And, but specifically on some of the support that's being provided from the kind of peak groups within community radio, I imagine, I mean, a lot of people don't realise how diverse community radio is and some stations are just tiny, aren't they? And mm. others are larger, like the one that we're broadcasting from here. Um, do, is there a picture yet of the kinds of supports that are most useful? Are we at that kind of spot still going, how are we going to do this? What, what happens if we shut down? Can we broadcast from home? All those sorts of things. Yeah, and look, it really is, um, you know, I <laughs> I mean, it really is a case by case. Every station is, 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 is having to make um, those decisions. We know that, you know, um, some stations have already made the decision uh, that the safest and best and most prudent thing for them to do for their broadcast family uh, is to flick the switch to the CRN and um, the community radio network, part of the CBAA as well, has offered um, its service uh, to stations that require it uh, for a period of six months, I think. Um, So, you know, I know anecdotally that uh, the little station, Artable P on the peninsula, that I sometimes do some broadcasting uh, through as well, I know that they made that decision, um, you know, to, to really limit the amount of live um, broadcasting that was going on. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of stations uh, are exploring uh, remote uh, broadcast opportunities. Those that can, I think this is the other thing too, is that it's really easy when um, you know if you if you're listening, you know, in the city, and presumably, you know, I know. Triple R is a global streaming audience, but for the most part, you know, the core audience is living in, in pretty much the, you know, one of two biggest cities in the country. And, and the reality for um, a Triple R audience is, is very different, or a Triple R, you know, um, a Triple R station are very different. Um, and I, look, I really have to say that, you know, I've, so I'm a, a locked on subscriber as well, and, and I've, I've been getting, you know, all the updates, um, you know, and in this instance from, from Dave and Beck. Um, at Triple R, just really letting its broadcast family know what's going on so that you're able to kind of, you know, broadcast safely and continue to do that safely. And and every station is doing that relative to, you know, its its kind of core 
group of, of people that it needs to think about um, most most specifically, and they are they are I guess the broadcasters first and foremost, and ensuring that um, you know that that people are able to maintain. Uh, their involvement and do it in a safe way and so every station is making that so it's kind of impossible to, to which is why I guess you know it's a very it's a very kind of nuanced and complex response in in so many ways because you know we're 450 stations um, you know only 25 percent of those stations are actually in 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 metro metropolitan areas in Australia you know we are 75 percent in remote and regional um, communities so you know everyone is grappling with what this means you know we, we've got we've got different kinds of messaging coming out of different state governments and a federal government you know we've got the Victorian government and the, the New South Wales government you know pulling kids out of school and everyone else still you know still got kids at school you know I think we are in uncharted um, territory you know this is an unprecedented uh, experience in our lifetime um, and you know we're all having to really bunker down and and <laughs> and assess what that means on on in our lives you know in our broadcasting but but fundamentally what it means in our lives and um, you know there is a stimulus package part of the many um, government announcements yesterday and there, there are many of them but you know the, the federal government has offered a support packages for businesses including not-for-profits that are impacted by COVID and um, you know all of you know we're doing what we can to um, you know support uh, you know, people to be able to kind of access the information, which is why I sort of come back to this. Um, CBAA are really doing a great job as as the single source of truth, um, and you know we we certainly support um, what they're doing on that page. They've got a fantastic uh, community radio COVID nineteen Facebook page, um, some really valuable webinars that have been developed by them. Um, the National Ethnic Broadcast um, uh, Council have been doing that for. Nations Media, you know, everyone is doing what we can um, to to ensure that the information gets out. But fundamentally, you know, we are a family. You know, whether or not you're broadcasting at Triple R or you're broadcasting at ERFM in Maria, we all get it. We all understand what motivates us to be involved in community radio. It's that deep sense of, of wanting to be, you know, part of a community. And, um, you know, these are the times that, that challenge us, but I think, you know, without muttering platitudes, you know, they are actually the times that we are reminded of the things that we cherish and value most. And I think, you know, we do, you know, community radio, certainly in Melbourne, um, is, is, is heartland of our culture. It's who we are. Yeah, and, um, it's been really reassuring. I mean, I'm part of that that page you're, you you mentioned there, um, Tracy, the, um, the COVID-19 response from the community broadcasting sector. And it's been very reassuring to see the cooperation and the knowledge sharing happening there. And if someone yeah. doesn't know the answer to something, they're kind of open about it and transparent and, and say, no, we'll, we'll try and find an answer for you. When there has been so much conflicting advice and, and information floating around, that's been kind of quite reassuring. And I think it's really important to... to um, um, you know, keep hope and and to see all the positive things that are happening, but not to get sort of too <laughs> gloomy for now because everyone's mm. sort of struggling in, in so many ways. But, I mean, a crisis such as this can really compound existing challenges and there are many, many existing challenges for particularly the smallest um, broadcasters in the, the community broadcasting sector. Are there concerns that some sort of might simply not go through, might not come out the other end and might need to shut up shop as a result of um, this this pandemic? Um, 
I think there are a lot of... Um, I think there will be a lot of stations that, that will be really having to consider, you know, their ability to um, weather this. Um, and they're not all the small stations, mm. actually, Dill, you know. Um, like any other business uh, in the country right now, in the world right now, uh, I think everyone is, is, is really having to uh, assess, you know, um, essential services, you know, I, I, and um, we would strongly advocate and argue that that community radio is 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 one of the core essential services. But um, you know, we've 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 got whole whole sectors of work uh, uh, disappearing, um, and, we, and nobody saw this coming. I mean, I, you know, I I just I mean, I guess in the in the worst scenario Hollywood blockbuster we've seen it coming and I and I guess we've had a few scares on this on this scale before uh, of this nature before but I think you know to I don't want to preempt how you know what you know what the sector is going to look like um, on the other side of this but I think um, anyone that is looking realistically um, would have to would have to think that that you know it will it will be a reflection of other things that are happening in other businesses and and other parts of the economy. What what I would also want to say, and originally I was really wanting to talk to you about this um, uh, amazing partnership that we've been able to secure with Support Act, and mm. um, we know that you know the first sector uh, that that we became really aware of that was impacted almost in an afternoon um, was the the life performance. Uh, sector in Australia, and um, we know we've, you know, there's been pop-up streaming festivals, and and that's all been amazing. Um, the people that I guess are are, are really uh, hit, uh, the crews and the music workers and people who work in those support industries. And Support Act is uh, for those that don't know, it's that um, benevolent charity for musicians and music workers. Um, they do amazing work. Um, they are the recipients, the beneficiaries of the annual Australian Music T-Shirt Day. Um, and we all take part in that. And I've been talking to Support Act originally about the DART project, you know, and whether or not there was a uh, the, the trauma project that I'm working on and whether or not there was room for, uh, for us to work together on that. And out of that, I guess, came um, the, the very generous offer from Support Act CEO Clive Miller and the chair Sally Howland uh, to extend access to the Support Act help, uh, wellbeing helpline to community broadcasters and people working in community broadcasting more broadly, um, communities of management, whatever role you might occupy, um, and recognise that you know we are in many ways hugely part of the performance industry and um we're we're kind of no you know no less impacted emotionally um by by seeing you know what's happening in in those sectors and uh, and, and of course many of us uh, are involved in those sectors as well so you know we were talking about, you know, out of out of these things, you know, do come the reminders of the things that hold us together and bind us. And um, it was it was one of those wonderful moments. I, I've known Clive Miller for, since he managed the go-betweens. <laughs> um, you know, I've known I've known him a long time, and 
um, it was it was just a wonderful gesture, a very generous gesture um, to extend the Support Act Wellbeing Helpline because, you know, we know that community radio has also been the backbone of Australian music, uh, whether it's, you know, in Melbourne or whether it's, you know, at the at the Maria, you know, pub, you know, um, when there was still a live touring scene uh, in Australia, or, you know, touring circuit in Australia, it was those little stations. You know, I, you know, I, I pulled into when I was on my way to Ear FM in Maria, and I found the tuning of the station, and they were playing, you know, they're playing the Oils <laughs> and playing a whole lot of music, you know, Australian music, and. You know, that's the place that you still hear it, you know, and um, so it was a wonderful thing. So the Wellbeing Helpline is that one eight hundred nine five nine five hundred number. Uh, there's been, uh, you know, quite a bit publicising that, you know, both through Support Act and it's sort of also got its um, Sounds of Silence campaign as well to, to urge people who are thinking about going to shows um, that you can, you know, still um, donate uh, the ticket price and if you go through them, you know, you would be paying the road and the tour managers and those people who don't have the merch and they don't have the streaming, you know, options to be yes. paid any other way for their service. Yeah, and there's um, um we've I, I note that on the Triple R website there's a really fantastic blog that's been put up about with those links and those phone numbers and ways that you can keep helping and um, participating and keeping um, you know music and and or just cultural life alive through this period. So you can um, go to the Triple R website rrr.org.au as well. And Tracy, we'd love to stay in touch with you. There's so much more we could talk about, but we're, we're kind of out of time. Um, no there's worries. one thing that doesn't change in radio is that you always end up out of time. For for fantastic conversations. <laughs> um, I have no doubt that through this period there's going to be a lot of unique broadcasting coming too and it just happens. Um, we're you're a resilient lot and uh, and we want to be there for people and we are there for people and, and that does breed new initiatives. So um, we'd love to stay in touch with you and you take care. And, and you and to um, the much-loved Triple R family, um, virtual hugs around everyone <laughs> and uh, hold tight. We Thanks, will, Trace. Indeed. Catch you soon. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And we're ringing around uh, this morning, checking in on people we care about and who are doing really important work and thinking and connecting right now. And one of those people is Rachel Hocking. She's an NITV journalist. Um, you'll know her here um, as a sometimes broadcaster on 3 Triple R. And it's really great to have you there, Rachel. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. And so pretty much, I mean, everyone's work life has been impacted by COVID-19 and we're having to find kind of workarounds for doing mm. our jobs as best we can. How have you been impacted, Rachel? What's um, your experience been thus far? Yeah, well, so it's interesting. Um, well, when we talk about essential services in this country, uh, the SBS and NITV, we actually count as an essential service and as a public broadcaster, um, you know, we've been having to navigate... Uh, ways to stay operating as, you know, tighter controls are placed on all of us and all of our lives. And um, that's been slowly happening over the last couple of weeks, definitely more so in the past week, finding ways to conduct interviews where we're not putting ourselves at risk or the community at risk. So a lot of Skype. Um, <laughs> we're on television. And, um, and I think, you know, you'd notice if you're watching ABC 24 or any of the other news services that you're probably seeing a lot more Skype interviews these days, um, we're having to be very careful about how we uh, interact 
with all the equipment that we use. Uh, you'd be very aware of this, you know, working in radio, how important it is to have clean mic socks on your microphone. We've had them replaced um, mid-show, in fact. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, these, these things that you probably never thought about before, but there's obviously a lot of saliva going on to those things. And so you've got to be very mindful of um, the distance you're having between uh, the people you're working with, so your camera person, um, the women who work in our um, makeup and hair room have been doing an amazing job making sure everything is just so, so hygienic at all times. And so, you know, we, we've got um, a million gloves going through. So I don't know what this means in the environment. Um, it's not going to be good. But a lot of, a lot of gloves going through, a lot of uh, wiping down of everything before you have to, you know, makeup brushes, all of that. Things that you just, you know, keep generally clean, but now you're keeping... Thing. And so it's um, it's there's a level of anxiety around a lot of it as well, and um, and that you know brings with it you know tension sometimes. And I think there's a lot of pressure, but everyone is supporting each other. We have um, a lot more uh, chat groups going on. I don't know if you have been doing this at Triple R or anyone else listening, but like WhatsApp groups and Microsoft Teams for the people who are half working at home and half coming into the office. And hangouts and Zoom and Zoom, all these all things. Like yep. Some happening. workplaces have been using these things for a really long time and I work somewhere that's you know really experienced with that sort of operations um, because we're flexible, but a lot of people are learning it new. And I think, um, I mean, I wonder if some teams are discovering tools that they'll keep using actually um, into the future and others maybe a finding pay um, you know firewalls and so forth are interrupting their um, their current operations yeah that's right and I think it's um it's it's a good way to be to be this connected I think that we're actually checking in on each other more than we ever have before and um, hopefully we continue these um, habits you know well after COVID-19 because I think it's it's been really um, important for morale but yeah we should these are good these are good habits to have um, and yeah, it's 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 finding ways to stay connected outside of work as well. So even um, just checking in on the team in those group chats with un uh, things that are unrelated to coronavirus, I think is really important as well to keep our spirits high. Um, I've definitely seen more memes than I've seen <laughs> in a long time in the past week, and it's it's been good. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean you are at NITV, Rachel, and um, and also broadcasting nationally, so that you know broadcasting to the whole country when there are different things happening in different places um the northern territory tassie south australia wa if they haven't already closed mm. their borders are, are about to and i mean these are issues that are huge unthinkable even a fortnight ago and of course aboriginal and torres strait islander communities are amongst those closed or closing um to those people coming from the outside how is that playing out do you know yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the Northern Territory in particular has kind of been ahead of the curve on this one. So we we uh, know, or at least we we can um, think we think we know just how devastating coronavirus would be if it hit a remote Aboriginal community. So the reason our peoples are so much more susceptible to this disease is because we are far more likely to have a chronic illness, and so the the rates in the communities are far higher than they are in urban centres, and the um, the number of people living in a household is much higher as well. So we have a huge issue with overcrowding in remote communities. You um, combine that with the health issues, with uh, the water quality, with a whole bunch of things, it, it 
makes a really uh, right situation for a terrible outbreak, which could be really devastating. And that's, you know, that's not something we shy away from at NITV when talking about this, but it is a big if because we can potentially really soften that impact if it happens and when it happens. And so uh, what our um, peak bodies for Indigenous organisations, for Aboriginal community-controlled organisations have been doing is really demanding that uh, strict controls are implemented now. And so what we can do um, at an uh, Aboriginal community level is shut off borders through communities, which has been happening. So the Northern Land Council already early last week shut off all uh, travel to remote communities, and that was something that's been followed by many other communities across the country. Um, and basically uh, what they're demanding the NT government to do in return is to uh, really limit the people coming in and out of the NT. So we're expecting that tomorrow the NT is going to fully close its borders. Um, under the Biosecurity Act, there's going to be very, very strict controls on who can come and go from a community. They're going to have to be in quarantine for 14 days before they go into an NT community. And uh, unless they are an essential service and they need to get there for, you know, their health um, or food needs. And so I think um, they're sort of leading the way in a lot of ways. And um, that's important because we need to be seeing a hard action for uh, something which we know that the experts are saying could be really devastating. And it's, it's, it's quite scary. The other thing um, to remember is that information flow to remote communities um, probably isn't what we're getting in the cities. And that creates fear because if you're not having a constant flow of information which is accurate, uh, which isn't fear-mongering and which is, um, you know, not rife with conspiracies, then, yeah, you're going to be pretty bloody scared. So a lot of the fear is, is also contributing to, you know, an atmosphere where it's probably not um, a great time to be living in a community right now. And so I think... Um, we have to be really mindful of that and pushing for information when it can to be translated into first languages, to be clear, to be calm and uh, to factor in things which we might not have to consider in the city. So uh, can we still go hunting? Can we still eat bush foods? Can we still use bush medicine? You know, really simple questions which are, you know, everyday things for people living in community, which now they're double-guessing. And mm. I think if we can start to get that information out in a calm way, then um, we're doing a good job. So that, that, that is happening. I think that it, it can always be improved. And the, the issue is, because this is an evolving situation, um, the information has to be uh, updated regularly, translated regularly, sent out to communities regularly. So our, our community broadcasters like yourself, National Indigenous Television, NITV, our remote Indigenous broadcasters, they play such a vital role right now. Yeah, and we've been speaking just um, earlier on the show actually about the role of community radio in this evolving crisis and absolutely yeah. for those remote Indigenous stations it's absolutely you know, fundamental um, that, that they survive and can keep broadcasting the most up-to-date information around this um, evolving crisis. Obviously all around the world there's concerns about the way the health system will be or has already been impacted by COVID-19. Um, here in Australia, um, you know, when we're talking about rural and remote health services, already there's challenges about around resources and funding and so on. Do you know at this stage whether there's anything in the, the current, um, the, the recent announcements from the federal government around funding and helping to support those rural and remote services, particularly Aboriginal controlled um, health services? 
Yeah, so we know that nachos in... So the peak bodies have been um, in close conversations with government about how they're going to be resourced to deal with this. Uh, and we know that there has already been um, talks... Uh, there's been um, leaks of information from the clinics in parts of the Kimberley in WA that the uh, that n- a level of equipment they have for a disaster, if it's struck, is not adequate. So um, things like protective gloves... Um, face masks, all of that. There's just not enough to get through even uh, a, a small level crisis. And so uh, at the moment, the calls are for getting as much equipment needed to these remote clinics, having them properly stocked up. Uh, and the biggest call has actually been for the military to be involved in some way to help bring uh, doctors, um, health professionals, experts in and out of community to help house people when they're there, to help look after the community, to make sure that isolation can be properly implemented and quarantine zones set up. And so these are all things that are still being developed and the um, level of funding that will go to these communities, I'm not sure if I have an updated figure on that, it's definitely something which we know that Pat Turner, along with all the other Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, are constant talks about to make sure that these organisations are given the uh, the freedom to uh, enact the measures they see fit for their communities, but with assistance. And this is actually coming from elders in communities saying that they want... And this isn't across the board, but just in in some circumstances in the NT, they want assistance from the likes of the army, from the military, to make sure that if a disaster hit, that they weren't going to be left out on their own, that they would have vehicles, that they would have zones to put people. And uh, it sounds quite scary, um, but I think it's very practical and we should be listening to what communities want. It's not across the board. There are different needs for different communities. We're a very diverse country. And what suits far north Queensland might not be the same for the Kimberley or even the Torres Strait. But there are varying calls across the country. The main thing is is to make sure that Aboriginal community-controlled organisations have the freedom to speak to their community and then enact what they think is best for them with the resourcing from government. Yeah, and I think it's good to keep saying um, that uh, one size doesn't fit all and that there needs to be different measures for for different situations around the country. And I think, you know, on one Mm. hand, we're hearing calls for, you know, the nation to speak in one voice, but that voice can be um, talking about different things for different people. Um, Rachel Hocking is with us. She's an NITV journalist. And um, before we move on to the announcement Victoria um, made last week with regards to the redress, scheme for um, stolen generations, Rachel. I wonder um, with regards to um, kids from remote communities that have been at boarding school, I know that a lot of kids Mm. are at boarding schools and the school holidays are coming up, many would have naturally returned home. Um, Is there any particular thing happening around that or is that really a case-by-case type situation? I'd like to update you on that because we've actually got journalists looking into that at the moment to find out what's going to be happening in the different parts of the country. We actually asked this question on my program last week and it was still kind of unclear about what was going to be happening for a lot of these boarding school kids. Some come as far as, you know, remote communities in WANT to Melbourne and Sydney and uh, we 
obviously don't know if all of them were able to fly back home to community before uh, borders have been closed or if, um, you know, flights have even been booked so that they can get on those flights before borders are closed. And so, um, yeah, we, we'd like to speak to anybody who's in that situation. We have journalists who are actually going out at the moment to find out more about that situation and, and what the plan will be for the kids who don't get home and um, and their families as well. So that's something that we're keeping an eye on and I'm not super up to date on at the moment, but definitely it's in the back of all our minds because so many of our, of our, of our kids are in boarding schools right across this country and often it's really far away from home. I can't imagine how scary that would be right now or um, how anxiety-inducing for the families. And one other thing it made me think of as well is um, the impact this is going to be having on funerals and business mm. in communities. Often we um, have, at least in my part of the world, in the uh, Tanami Desert of the Northern Territory, won't have a funeral for up to three months after a death. Um, but there is a mourning period that happens, and that mourning period is really important, and it, it involves um, sitting in groups. And the, the changes to, the, to how we interact with each other and how we practice ceremony and culture, I think, are going to be quite um, severe. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm thinking of all the communities across the country right now who are having to um, negotiate that and navigate it and find ways to still stay connected and practice culture while being very safe at the same time. Yeah. And, I mean, as, as Carly mentioned just before, there was an announcement last week that kind of got buried in all the COVID-19 mm. news um, that the Victorian government has announced a redress scheme for the stolen generations valued at $10 million. I mean, this comes over 10 years after the Commonwealth apology to the stolen generations and more than 20 years since the Bringing Them Home report. Why did this emerge at this particular point in time? Yeah, so um, could you repeat that question? You've cut out halfway through. I just <laughs> Sorry, the end of the report, we, we, yes. We've got a very strange sound on our end as well. But, um, I mean, just yeah, um, okay. on the, the government redress scheme for the stolen generations announced by the Victorian government, I mean, that's come over 10 years since the apology and, and over 20 mm. years since the Bringing Them Home report. Why did this emerge at this particular point in time? Uh, look, they've been in talks uh, with the community about a redress scheme for a while. It is, I think it's important to point out that the Victorian government is pretty much the last state to do anything in regards to reparations or redress for members, survivors, families of the stolen generations. So um, it is firstly very overdue, long, long overdue. Mm -hmm. um, the the talks date back decades with community. The calls for redress to stolen generations in Victoria in particular were some of the first because uh, the history of stealing children in this state or in Victoria, I should say, I'm in New South Wales, uh, in Victoria is pretty, pretty um, severe and uh, some of the worst cases right across the country. Um, they were brought up again around 2015-2016 when treaty talks in the state kicked off with the Labor government and nothing happened. So the treaty talks started uh, and all of a sudden the calls for redress, which were very much a part of those first initial discussions, people wanted, they wanted action and that seemed like a very easy, or maybe not easy, but a very practical first step. It was sort of buried um, along the way, and I think, you know, I guess people could never predict just how complicated and, and big the treaty talks would become, but they sort of swallowed, I guess, that discussion for the last few years. 
and um, and it w- it's been brought up every single year by community. They haven't stopped calling for it every single year around Sorry Day, around the anniversary of the apology. You'll hear the community bring this up again. Um, what's been really devastating is the fact that a lot of uh, elders, a lot of stolen generation survivors and a lot of the people who were impacted by this weren't around to see the announcement and in the past week the Victorian community actually lost um, a beautiful auntie and uh, it was only days before the announcement was made. She was one of the most staunch activists calling for um, reparations and redress and so I think that there's a sadness in community that this announcement came about um, despite decades and decades of calling and fighting for it. So, um, yeah, it, it, in, in total, it's, you know, $10 million redress scheme. Uh, what that looks like is still going to be um, told to the community, but we'll be looking at things like a, a funeral fund, which is usually part of a redress scheme, um, counselling um, payments, one-off payments to families. And the good thing is, is they are including families in this. So if you are the family of somebody who has passed away, you can apply for redress for your loved one who was stolen because we know that the impact of taking a child away from a family isn't just on the on the individual. It impacts the entire community and it has um, flow-on effects for generations to come. That's what we talk about when we talk about intergenerational trauma. So... There's a hopefully some healing to come from this, but if you saw the press conference like I did last week yeah. and you saw Kutcher Edwards um, and his beautiful family standing side by side, you'd know that the pain is still very, very much there. So I, th- I think, you know, we wait and see how they implement this and uh, how community is involved. I just hope that it happens quickly. Hmm. Yeah, let's hope so. And I mean, just finally, Rachel, you, you put together a great episode of The Point um, last week, uh, inviting um, listeners to send in questions that you kind of try and mm. answer. How are you proceeding in, in the coming week with, I guess, you know, doing doing your thing, but covering the, the rolling <laughs> COVID-19 situation as well? Yeah, um, yeah, great question. I think it's um, one you're probably grappling with weekly as well. <laughs> yes, we are. After, after some tips. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, so we um, we have talked about potentially having to do the show via Skype in the coming weeks. I'm not sure. Um, I, we're planning on going into the studio as normal on Wednesday. Um, you know, with all of the um, precautions in place, we're being very, very careful. Um, but we're probably not having guests in anymore, just Skyping them in. We are uh, getting experts from community. Uh, we have um, an Indigenous epidemiologist coming on the program this week. I'll be speaking to her in the coming days and uh, getting a similar uh, discussion to what we had on the program last week with our expert where we have questions from community and um, we answer those. But we're, we're going to broaden our shows not just to be on COVID-19 mm. because, as you said, uh, the redress news was buried last week. Um, there's also um, other news that has been buried in the last couple of weeks. We know that um, uh, they're now opening up Victoria to drill for gas again, which is an environmental issue that Indigenous communities have been campaigning against. The moratorium's been lifted, and I think that's something that we'll be focusing on again in the coming weeks. We're going to have a slight environment focus this Wednesday, so there'll be a fracking story from WA as well, uh, making sure that we're keeping across a bunch of issues. The, the, the thing is now, though, every single story we discuss uh, and the impact on our people is now 
most likely going to have a relationship with coronavirus. Uh, and that is something we can't escape. That's the new well, reality we live in. It's yeah, we're all, we're all there together. And I think, um, you know, over time, and I suppose we're thinking too, we'll be guided by our, our audiences and by, and by um, our colleagues and, and friends about how we tell this story to each other and how we go forward and, and keep being, um, you know, talking about other things as well. But, of course, the reference point is there. So, yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you guys are killing it as well, by the way. Um, I've been, hey. you know, really admiring right how Triple R has handled this whole thing. So. Right back at you, <laughs> Rach. Yeah. Just <laughs> catch you soon. Rachel Hocking, NITV journalist and uh, co-host of The Point. Um, and, yeah, lots of great media, lots of great stories being told, of course, and we'll keep um, bringing you Rachel as well over the over the rest of this year. She's a kind of a new regular on our show. She is indeed. Very Always welcome. good to have her when, uh, when she's available. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.